Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio Network. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation certified instructor and resiliency expert, helping people to live positively with the challenges of life. You can find out more about me in this interview at my website. It's Tom, the number two, and tall, T-A-L-L dot com. My guest today is a fellow Canadian, Spencer Beach. Spencer learned that sometimes tragedy chooses you for no reason at all. On a day like any other, just doing his job, he found himself suddenly engulfed in a flash fire. It came with a whistle and a bang, and it changed his life within the blink of an eye. Within 20 seconds, he received third and fourth degree burns to 90% of his body. He fought through the fire to escape, to live, even though he thought he was going to die. But he held on to the fading thoughts of his wife, and she was pregnant with a child in her womb, and that gave him the courage to find a way out. But he had no idea what that survival would mean. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Thank you, Tom. Uh, amazing story. One of my heroes, if you don't know him, I'll introduce you, W. Mitchell. He was a former president of the National Speakers Association, went through a burn incident like yours, and so I learned a little bit about it. And despite my arthritis pain from jaw to toes, being burned, I understand, is the worst pain in the world well that's what people tell me i don't know i haven't felt all the different types of pain out there (laughs) so um i will say being burned is painful but what i learned is the recovery is even more painful yeah 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 now um mitchell talks about after recovering that kids on the street would call them horrible names, and um, did you get some of that after? Because certainly you, you look different after than before. Well, I definitely do. Um, we are coming up to my favorite day of the year, and that would be Halloween. <laughs> Being that's the one day of the year everyone tries to look like me. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, you you need to take it with a grain of salt and with understanding what's happening. Yeah. When kids, and they're the most obvious when they look at you, they just don't understand. They're trying right. to put one plus one together and figure out what the the answer is. Um, so usually, you know, they're they're very honest, and you know, I do look different. I I understand that, um, but the way I look at it when it comes to when I go out into public is everyone looks different. And uh, when I look around in the world and I see uh, everyone is looking different and they can hold their heads up high and be proud of who, the, of who they are, then why can't I hold my head up high and be proud of who I am? Yes, I love it. And even I, you know, five foot one, limp a lot. Uh, I used to get upset when kids, you know, in a grocery store, Mom, why is he so short and why does he walk like that? And I used to want to just tell them, listen, I'm taller than you, so be quiet. But after I matured in age, as you said, they're kids, you look different, and they don't understand, and they're very honest. And so I use it sometimes as a teaching thing. Well, I have arthritis, you know, maybe you haven't heard of it, and try and explain to them and you know that people have handicaps and that. And so 
good way to teach it. You're actually a learning uh, process for kids and adults alike, I'm sure. And that's why out of all the presentations I give, my favorite is going to the school system. That must be... That must be incredible. The questions, the looks, the, the they must just be fascinated by your story. Well, the most interesting comment I've had so far is I had um, a pizza delivery driver of all the people uh, ask me if I was born this way. And I looked at him, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I came out of my mother with friction burn. Yeah, yeah. That was like, a hell of a delivery. <laughs> How do you get burned being born? I, I don't know. So it's the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some silly ones as well. And now the thing I was most impressed with, most impressed with is the pictures of you and your wife and your son. Most, or I won't say most, I bet a significant percentage of women or men reversing the circumstance might have left during the time when you needed it the most or wouldn't be able to stay married and that must be an amazing testament to your wife and to the love you have for each other and your son and you talked about recovering afterward is more difficult than recovering in the hospital was this part of the recovery like a your marriage and your child and all that? Yeah, I have to. You hit the nail on the head. I do have a very strong wife. Um, I uh, am thankful every day for for her. Um, but the reality is, is what I've found with all the other people I've motivated after they've been hurt is the loved ones are always there during the beginning. It's after the initial shock is done and the recovery is well on its way, that's when they have a chance to start to reflect and to, mm. to look at how their lives have changed, and, um, and that's when the pressure builds up. It's normally after the person's out of the hospital and back at home, and now they're, uh, instead of going to work, they're at home 24-7, and mm. you know they're on medication, and they're in pain, and they're mm. needy, they need help with things, and... Um, it, that's when the issues happen. So what I do is um, I have a contract with WCB here in Alberta where once or twice a year they call me in and give me roughly about 10 to 12 of the more challenging clients. And my first rule when nurse, um, the first thing I said when we started this is I want the client and their loved one in the room because I don't believe it's a successful story unless we can keep the family together. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, initially afterwards, everybody is there for someone within the first two weeks. That's yeah. how people are, especially a loved one. You just love on them and pray, and what else can you do? You do what you can, but you're right. When you get home and it's like, is this the life I'm signed up for and I'm going to have and have to do all this helping and I got a baby and that's when the questions must come in. Did, did your wife ever get to that point or is this you, you guys are, your love is so strong that this is what she well, was there for and what she's what she signed up for? Um, no, she hit that point about six years ago. She went through severe depression. Uh, we ended up separating for almost two years. Um, 
and you know it, it was her turn to heal i you don't have any say in when that happens and right. you don't have any say in how other people are going to express pain so right. you just when they hurt they need to hurt and one of my beliefs in uh, in a marriage or a partnership is it's love is easy during the good times it's mm-hmm. super simple to go on a romantic dinner or walk down a beach hand in hand or mm-hmm. be out with a bunch of friends and smile and look at each other in the eye and say, I love you. That's simple. But it's, you know, that commitment of when the times are good, when you make that commitment, you're also saying, you know, I'm there for the bad times. And that is ultimately why we look for a significant others is so that, you know, when the bad times are there, we have someone to lean on, someone we can trust, someone that we can support us and help us through it and, um, yes. but that is also when it gets the most complicated too right so man you're really teaching me here I'm writing notes yeah, you're so right it is it's easy to go for a dinner it's easy to go on a vacation um, you can do that with many spouses like men or women you can switch partners and do those things with so many people but the ones that truly love you are there in the bad times of life and that's when you really know that you have a solid relationship is when they're there through the bad times so that's amazing now uh, uh, I talk about this in my talks as well dealing with hardship adversity Um, so many people ask why me why did I get cancer why did I get arthritis why did I get burned and in my head I don't really tell it to them all the time in their face, but I'm thinking, why not you? Everybody suffers. You are not unique or especially gifted or blessed that you should not experience. Oh, that person is so nice. They don't deserve to get cancer. Cancer doesn't care about niceness. or Arthritis doesn't care about niceness. It's universal. We're all yep. going to have to go through challenges. Now, sometimes the challenges are three months, let's say, after your mom dies and you know, that's really, really, really depressing. Maybe it's even longer. Sometimes it's a lifelong battle. Yours yours is not going to go away. <laughs> You're going to have this forever, and I'm going to have arthritis forever. But adversity is universal, isn't it? It happens to everybody. I used uh, Prince Henry and William uh, when I'm talking on my presentation on hardship. They have everything. They were born with bigger bank accounts than I'll ever have multiple castles to choose from, uh, servants to wait on them, uh, limos and drivers to drive them, private planes, they have it all. And when they lost their mother in that horrific car accident, I almost guarantee you they said, why me? You know, it it is completely universal. Hardship's universal. And the answer to why me, I found the answer is because you're alive. (laughs) Right. And yet, most people, that's a hard one to handle. I'm so good, they don't deserve it, they deserve this or that. But if you're alive, you're going to have periods of hardship. But is there something, I tell people to prepare in, in advance and, like, you know, feed your brain with positive thoughts and stories like yours. Like, I interview people like you, so you can inspire me. So when I'm going through a bad day, I can think, well, I'm not Spencer, and look at what he's doing. And so do you have a message for people about hardship? Like, yes, it's universal. Um, Suggestions or tips on how to deal with it? Yeah, first, it's alive. 
I believe hardship is completely alive. The anger, the depression, the self-pity, the anxiety that comes with it, it's a living entity. Mm-hmm. And like all living entities, it wants to feed and it wants to reproduce. And it feeds off of you and it reproduces by getting out of you and going into your loved ones. And what I mean by that is quite often the self, first it starts with the self-pity. And then the why me, why did this have to happen to me, how come my life sucks, uh, you know, I'm not smart enough, why am I not free enough, why do I not have all this money or whatever. Yeah. And then you tend to blame people, right? It's yeah. your fault, you did this to me. And what happens when you're blaming people is subconsciously you have all this negativity in you and you want it out. And the only way to get it out is by tossing it on to other people. Unfortunately, when you do that, the only people you can really touch are your friends and your loved ones and the caregivers that are there around you because they're the ones that you can that are there to be touched. Yeah. And when you do that, when you're constantly going up, let's go back to the spouses here, you know, and you're back home from the hospital and you're now infringing on their space and you don't feel good about who you are and you're playing this pity party and you start blaming them because you can't pick up a fork or you can't go get your own dinner or you need help going to the bathroom or whatever the case. Right. It's, you know, now you're putting that negative energy onto them. when you call It's them, illogical, though. Yeah, but it's what you need to get it out of you. Yeah. It's like filling up a balloon. Right. You keep on filling up a balloon with air, it's going to pop, yeah. right? You need to release it and that's what they're doing but they don't realize that the way they're releasing it is they're actually attacking those that are around them to help them. And what happens is then they leave. And every time hardship chases a positive thing out of your life, it has a greater chance to live and a greater chance to grow and stay strong within you. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. You really have learned a lot from this fire. <laughs> oh, and it's well, teaching me a lot, too. Yeah, it is. Not, you need a release. Like you, you just need a release. You need to, you need to vent it out so that you feel better. And of course, the people you're around the most—they're the ones who get it. And um, and it's hard to control it. Hard to keep it in. And and you're probably not good for a person to not vent some of it uh, for their own personal sake. But yeah, that's. Very interesting. Now, uh, you uh, in your story, you talk about how uh, life is pretty simple, but we make it very complicated, but you had to yeah. learn that by going through fire. Yeah. Tell us about um, that, because I, I was just thinking today how my life is too complicated. Uh, it was the first lesson the fire ever taught me, and it took me years to figure it out. Um, I remember going through the fire, and I'm not supposed to do. Most people don't remember their severe incident. Mm-hmm. But in the fire, towards the end, before I got out, I actually gave up at one point. Um, I was physically on fire. My clothes had burnt off. I had no more hair left. And I collapsed into a ball. I interlocked my fingers with the back of my head. And everything became very calm and peaceful. And I had that near-death experience where time just slowed down. And I contemplated you know, I thought about Tina, my wife, and our unborn child um, in her belly, and and it just was about them. That's all I could focus on. Now, prior to the fire, let's back up 20 seconds. 
I was worried about getting the job done, what I was going to have for dinner. I was going home to plan a friend's bachelor party, uh, paying off the bills. My wife was just laid off recently, so I'm the sole income earner, you know, making sure the wife and the, the baby are taken care of. And it's just, you know, what I had to do tomorrow, what I was going to do tonight, yeah. making sure everything was there. And now I'm on death's door. Yeah. And all I could think about was my wife and daughter. Nothing else mattered. Not what and you're having for dinner, not about putting put money didn't, in the bank, all those things. Didn't matter. I went five years without a job after that, and the bills were still paid. The vehicles were still there. We had to lose one vehicle, but that's okay. I couldn't drive it for a long time anymore. <laughs> You know, the baby came healthy. My friend got married still. Sure, I didn't throw the bachelor party, but he still had one. Um, you know, the house actually, although it was burnt down, was rebuilt faster than I could get out of the hospital. So even the job got done faster than I could recover. And it's, you know, nothing mattered. So I live every day now knowing that what really matters in life is those that I love and those that love me. And my saying that goes with that is if at the end of the day my family is happy, healthy, and safe, I had a really good day. Yeah. Anything above that, you know, winning the lottery, getting straight A's, buying a brand new car, whatever, getting a promotion, it was gravy. I didn't need it. I already had what I needed for happiness. That's just gravy. And everything below that, the hardship stuff, well, that becomes an opportunity to grow. Right. Uh, I was thinking this all this time, but I thought I was talking about... Uh uh, your wife too much, but uh, what made her come back? You didn't get better looking, <laughs> and so eventually, uh, your love, her love, uh, just went out. Uh, how did that happen? Her grief, she got over it, or understood it, or how did she come back? When she hit depression and she asked for a divorce, um, I knew exactly where it was coming from. It was. Uh, it wasn't that she didn't love me it just it became hard for her to love me so I had to stop being a husband and start being a friend I had to let her heal the way she had to heal in her time and her way so I moved out of the house I rented a place she didn't work for the two years we cashed in lots of savings and um, I kind of just hovered from far away you know, making sure that everything was taken care of. We started dating again, although she didn't realize we were. Uh, you know, I just started being a friend and listening to her and taking her out and cut out all the stress of, um, you know, physical or intimate relationship mm-hmm. and just put it to what she needed at that time. And I waited, you know, and, and uh, eventually over time she realized that she had a pretty good guy who was really devoted to her and you know, I didn't ask for this to happen to us. Um, you know, I thought I was just being a good provider and a good worker and, uh, you know, following orders. But, um, you know, it, it would have been the worst strategy. It would have been worse than me dying would be have us split up. Mm-hmm. So I, I just stayed. I, uh, I did what I needed to do. I didn't blame her. I didn't get angry, just as she didn't with me. You know, I, uh, I had to heal in my way. And I am amazed how strong and supportive she is. She's stronger and more supportive than I am, I can tell you that. Wow. But I I knew it was my time to be there for her, and I gave her exactly what she gave me. Nice. Let's talk about being unique. I love uniqueness. 
I don't want to be like everyone else, and I, I, I don't fit in everywhere. I'm just, I love being mm-hmm. unique. People are just too, they're so too concerned about looking and being and whatever, like everyone else. And um, I think that now my purpose came about because of my arthritis. I get to encourage and inspire people, and get amazing emails and get people crying and I think man if I didn't have this I'd probably be just some run of the mill Tom Cunningham now I don't imagine you would ever think that well this has become a blessing but it sure has allowed you to impact and touch and make people cry and think and ponder and that's more than the average Joe gets to do well, that's uh, when you spend 14 months in the hospital, you have a lot of time to think, <laughs> let alone the <laughs> four years of recovery after that. Um, but let's talk about being unique. You know, I look at Hollywood. Um, Justin Bieber is the person I always use. Uh, nowadays, well, let's go back to when he was 15. When he was 15, he was a very respectable, loved, admired young man who had the whole world in his hands, and he achieved pretty much every one of his dreams at the age of 15. And now we fast forward five, six years, and he's, what, 21, I think, 22 maybe, and he's uh, got a couple DUIs to deal with and some assault charges, and uh, he's tattooed up and down, and he's using hard drugs from what I've heard on the media. And, um, you know, he, he lost sight of everything he had. Yeah. And it happened because it, he was not good enough. You know, he was hanging out with people in Hollywood who said, Hey, Justin Bieber, try this substance. Hey, Justin Bieber, let's go to this place. Hey, Justin Bieber, let's be doing these things. Hey, Justin Bieber, don't worry about the law. You're too good for it. Mm-hmm. And he now, everything he had at 15, he's, if anything, he's a shadow of it at best. It's the same with Lady Gaga. You know, she walks around and she put on a meat dress. Um, like, let's think about that. A dress made of meat. Why? For attention is the only reason, because she wants to be that unique. And the reality is, is um, most people, you know, Hollywood has got uniqueness completely wrong, although they have the idea of a uniqueness is um, very right. But the way they express it is extremely bad. Mm-hmm. Being unique is something you already are. Uh, right. And I use the human body to explain it. In the human body, we have a billion cells. Well, actually, there's over a trillion cells in the human body. And now there's 8 billion people roughly on this world. I've never counted them all. <laughs> Let's start. Yeah. But, so there's more than enough room in the human body to fit every single person in there if we put them to a cell, right? Right. Now, if we gave every person in the world the opportunity to choose what part of the body they'd want to be, we'd all relatively gravitate to the same part, body parts, right? We'd want to be the big muscles if we're the athlete, or we'd want to be the eyes if we're the artist or the ears, if we're the, the musician, right, or the hands if we're a painter. Or, you know, nobody would ever say, I want to be a toenail. Nobody would say, I want to be the pancreas or the bumhole, right? Nobody would ever pick these things. Yeah. We'd all want to pick the best of the best parts of the body. And it's the same thing happening in the world and in society. We all want to be famous, we all want to be rich, we all want to be popular, we all want these attributes which not everybody can have. And if you understand the part of the body you are, 
then you can fulfill that need of the body greater than you could ever by trying to be a part of the body you're not. So, and you need the body. You need every cell in the body working in its way, in its uniqueness for the body to function. Mm. And if the whole world was professional athletes, this world would suck. Right? If we were all famous rock stars, this world would blow. There would be no teachers, no doctors. What would happen if you got sick? Right. You know, there'd be no one even there to put you in the ground or to cremate your body. You'd just have dead bodies on the street. You wouldn't even have a street because nobody would be there to make it. Right. You know, so we all need to embrace who we are and understand the part of the body we're fulfilling. And then that makes you unique because then your uniqueness isn't on the outside. It's on the inside because you know who you are. Yeah, exactly. It's on the inside. The Bible talks about that a lot where, you know, we can't all be the prominent parts and yet we need all of our parts. Like, mm-hmm. you need a baby toe. If you didn't have a baby toe, you'd be off balance a lot. It wouldn't be very easy to get around. It'd make yep. a big difference in your life. And so every little part is needed and part of the whole. But we're all unique parts. And so, you know... Be unique as much as you can without, you know, without being nuts or getting in trouble. But uh, unique as we are, all unique. And, you know, don't try and hide your uniqueness. <laughs> Rejoice in your uniqueness. Uh, you don't want to be just like everyone else. So, interesting. Now, uh, here's a topic we may disagree on. Okay. Uh, I, uh, with my chronic pain, yeah. have taken... Tylenols and all kinds of pain medication for many years. They make me sick. Mm-hmm. I smoke pot for pain. But yep. you are against a lot of uh, this. Uh, first of all, against legalizing pot. And tell me about your experiences with drugs and, and alcohol abuse. Uh, first, I would not ever say stop doing what you're doing. You're using pot for the way it should be used. Right. I'm against legalizing marijuana for recreational use. Right. My experience with it is I smoked my first joint when I was probably about 12, and I didn't stop until I was about 29, which meant I spent about 17 years high. Um, now, how many or, of those were, did you smoke after the fire? Um, no, not really. I okay. probably I tried it here and there, but I can tell you I can't even remember the last time I've had uh, any kind of drug in my my system. Mm-hmm. That wasn't so 17 years, though. 17 years, and it wasn't, um, you know, I went into, I graduated grade 9 or uh, with straight A's, and I went into high school. I was one of the more lonely kids in the school, mm-hmm. and I was bound and determined that come grade 10, I was going to change my status. <laughs> I found that um, if I started smoking, I was cooler, and if I started drinking, I was even more cooler, and then if I started using drugs, well, now I was the coolest kid around. And I made lots of friends, and I had lots of fun in high school, and then I got burned, and uh, every one of those friends I made were built off of drugs. Mm-hmm. And I found that none of those friendships I had, right now, out of all the friends that I had before, I have one that still contacts me on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, all my friendships were built off of addictions yeah. and substances, and that is not how you build a relationship. So... Um, but the, my experience is, you know, I've, I can't tell you how many of my friends that I went to high school with, who my chronic friends were, that have been to jail. Um, 
my best yeah. friend that I've known since I've been two. He doesn't. I haven't talked to him in years, and he doesn't know where I live because he's stolen from his mom, his brother, my brother, his sister-in-law, anyone he can. He steals from to support his addictions. Yeah. I've lost lots of friends to substance abuse, um, either from drinking and driving, or being stoned and driving, or just overdosing. Uh, and I've just I've seen that it is a gateway drug, um, and there's lots of papers to support it, and there's lots of papers to deny it. It doesn't really matter when you're in that crowd and you start mm. out right. and you watch the prog- progression. Yes, uh, you see it gets worse and worse. And the worst part is, is uh, even my own brother, my middle brother, is to this day he's lost everything in life because of substances, and yeah. it robs people. Of who they can be, but that's right. not even why I'm against it. I'm against it for completely different reasons. Um, I've just seen the reality of how hard it really is, and then people say, and this part bothers me a lot. They say, "Well, marijuana is not that bad," and I'm like, "So it is bad. <laughs> it's bad, but not words, that but bad. It's bad. Yeah. <laughs> and who gives you the right to classify? Right, bad? right. You're the in charge of badness now. Yeah." So you right. think lung cancer is not bad or throat cancer is not bad or emphysema? I have emphysema from smoking and doing drugs today at 40. You yeah. think that's not bad? I think they're pretty bad. Like there's very, and now they're linking mental illness to teenagers and young children who start using pot at young ages. Yeah. That's pretty bad if you ask me. And uh, I really agree with you. My wife has a brother who has been in jail hmm probably 30 times, he's in his early 50s, uh, steals from everybody. His grandmother said he'd steal the fillings out of your teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and drugs, just totally because of drugs. And my wife works has worked for a criminal defense lawyer for 18 years, and many, many good percentage, significant percentage of her clients are because of drugs and alcohol. May not be what they did was illegal, but uh, the drugs and alcohol weren't maybe why they were arrested. Maybe it was something else, but it's usually backed up by some kind of drug or alcohol abuse. And, uh, well, really, it's really curious. People start because they're curious, but yeah. get curious about something else. Well, I'm not against decriminalizing it for the user. That makes sense. Right. But for the pusher, yeah, there should be some real consequences. Oh. And I don't think it should ever be a legal substance because, A, the biggest problem with it is you can't test if somebody's um, stoned and driving. There's no test for it. Right. So, to me, how are you going to protect the safety of the public? But the real thing that bothers me on legalizing marijuana is if you look at history and you go back to prohibition, when the mobsters were running all the alcohol, they were against using pushing any drugs. In fact, it was down, like if you were a part of the mob and pushing drugs, you got taught a lesson, and a, real, a lesson you would never forget. And it wasn't until prohibition then was abolished that you took the revenue source away from the mob, and they started then to go and find new revenue sources, so they started to push the drugs. If you take the revenue source away from today's black market of marijuana, they're not going to just close their doors and say, we're out of business. They're going to go find new revenue sources. They're going to go start pushing the mushrooms and the LST and the ecstasy and the mm. meth and all these hard right. drugs. Right. And people say you're going to, you know, it will take it down the black market. It's not going to take it down. It's going to just make them push worse substances. 
And then the other myth that people say is, well, it's going to bring in all these taxes. Now, we have Colorado to use as a great example. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. started out saying, we're going to make $40 million in taxes, and then they actually doubled that, said, no, we didn't believe it, we're going to make $80 million in taxes. Now, Colorado has roughly 6 million people in its population, so that's double the size of Alberta. And last year in Alberta, we spent $1 billion on substance abuse. So if you're spending a billion dollars to treat the abuse, and they're making $80 million in revenue and taxes, there's not going to be any extra money for schools or for the jails or to fight the crime. You're in a losing situation, and the people that are going to pay for it is in the healthcare costs and in the substance abuse counseling and nice. and the safe so programs true. and the education. It's a lo- I'm not against medical ma- marijuana at all. I think um, I know a lot of burn survivors that use it for pain control. I understand it. Uh, it's good for glaucoma. It's good for dietary needs. There's yeah. a lot of good purposes to it. But recreational, no, and and yeah, that I yeah I totally see your point there. Like. Yeah, getting into that just for recreational. And uh, the tax thing, you're so right. Oh, that's what I was thinking of. Zig Ziglar, my favorite speaker of all time, he used to say the same thing. I think his example was in the States for every dollar in taxes they took in for cigarettes, they spent like 2 or $3 treating the diseases caused by smoking. So, yeah, $1 in taxes goes out to be $3 in healthcare expenses to look after the person. And so it's never a positive gain. Well, when you look in Canadian market, right, I don't know what a pack of cigarettes is, but say it's $15 for a pack of cigarettes. Mm-hmm. If that entire pack was taxable, and so you made $15 in taxes and then smoked a pack a day, so you have 365 days, you're roughly pulling in about $5,000 in revenue, mm-hmm. that covers three days in the hospital per year if the entire pack was taxable. It's Yeah, exactly. So even people who are non-smokers shouldn't be thinking, well, this might be a good revenue source, so he should approve it. Uh, no, it's going to cost you money. So It's going to cost a lot more money, yep. Don't vote for it, especially if you don't use it. You're just going to be pouring out your own money yeah. uh, and to once you solve open the that, problems. Once you open that door, you'll never close it. Right, and that's just the health care problem. That's not the... Divorce, uh, family issues, all the other issues that come with it that don't have yeah. a dollar amount on them but have a severe life hardship attached to them. Let's talk about safety. You weren't sure. just walking around and there was spontaneous combustion, was there? Uh, I guess. Or was it? No. No, there was a cause. It was completely uh, predictable what would have happened. Um, if I would have had the knowledge to, it was in you your know, home. Going to learn about it, yeah. It was in your um, home. So it could have happened to your wife. Well, no, because she wasn't in. She wasn't at work doing what I did. I was a tradesman. Um, oh, right, dollar. right, at work, right. Yeah, and I was installing. My job on the crew was to be the service guy. So all day long, I went fixing other qualified installers' mistakes, and we worked in the new home industry. And on April 24, 2003, that day I was sent in, on top of all my other services, I had a bigger one to go to at the end of the day to remove linoleum. And my employer had a method where you dumped a chemical, it was a contact thinner, all over the ground. The chemical would soften the glue and the linoleum would peel up in sheets. It, mm-hmm. uh, the old way was use a scraper and physically remove it, which took <laughs> days of doing. 
mm. which now my employer had down to ours. Um, but unfortunately, there was, at that time, zero safety in the new home industry. There was no training, no ticketing needed, no certification needed, no questioning, no safety meetings, nothing. So I uh, I went in, and I was doing my job. I, in the morning, I had this feeling that I should have... Um, phoned in sick, but that's not the worker I am. Um, I I don't cop out. I didn't make it as high up the ladder as I did by copping out. And, you know, everyone relied on me. The job had to be done. It was a rush job, new home. The flooring had to be replaced so the customers could move in in a week. My wife wasn't working. You know, I the home builder relied on me. My boss had more stuff for me to do it next day. It's You know, I had to get it done, so I did it. Uh, and at about four in the afternoon, the chemical ignited. What happened was the furnace came on. Although I was taught by my boss to turn the thermostat down, I didn't turn it off. And the uh, when the furnace came on, it pulled all the fumes down the cold air return, which happened to be what was the flammable part, ignited the fumes, shot them back up, and created a violent explosion. Now, the chemical was never meant to be used the way I was using it. I was dumping it on the floor to soften up the entire surface of glue where it was only meant to be put a little bit on a rag and remove glue residue. Months later, uh, probably 18 months later roughly, uh, I was finally had the nerve to read the fire investigation and it was very clear what started the chemical or the chemical on fire and how easily it could have been avoided. And then later I was sitting at home probably about two and a half years into my journey and I was retired and I was told I'd never go back to work from workers' compensation. So I'm sitting at home and I had enough of sitting at home. It gets pretty boring. Oh, yeah, I know. And I phoned workers' compensation told them I wanted to go back to work and they said, great. So they sent me to some career counseling. The career counselor said, pick a career and everything I picked they said I couldn't do and then I stumbled across this thing called safety officer. I had no idea what that was. I'd never even heard the term before. And so it intrigued me, and I started learning about it, and I went to, they said I could do it, so I started taking the courses, and I read the material safety data sheet. I actually took the women's course and then read the material safety data sheet, and it was clear as day on that sheet. Don't spill this chemical, and like all over the place, and the precautions it had on how to use, or what to do with the chemical if it did spill were, were phenomenal. And it just dawned on me, like, why is it so many workers? Like, I was one of them. We fought safety. Every time it even crept into my industry, I was against it automatically. And here, if I would have just believed in in safety and read the one sheet, all I had to do was read one piece of paper. Right. The outcome of that day could have been completely different. Right. And as I said, it was easier for them to rebuild the house than it was for me to go through the hospital. Um, you know, yeah. the house you'd never known was went through a fire, and I'll live with it for the rest of my life, right? Right. So right, I started. Right. You know, I started to just. I don't know. I became very passionate about safety because uh, I don't ever want to see anyone ever go through a horrible incident. But more importantly, I don't ever want to see go anyone go through a horrible incident knowing they could have avoided it and coming out the other end and seeing, you know, watching your brother turn into an alcoholic and having your wife hit depression and your daughter never knowing your real face because she's only known you as a burn survivor. And, yeah. and you know, the, the the real consequences of when things go wrong are not worth what it would have taken, how simple it would have been to stop it and make it go right. Yeah. 
Oh, God. My dad was in the explosives industry his whole life, and I worked in it for five or six years, and there are shortcuts taken. Yeah, you worked a long day. Mm-hmm. If there's something you can do to cut five minutes off your time, not the safest, but it works all most of the time, it happens. And, yet, you know, safety, you only need to have it happen badly one time, the thing you know could happen. And, boy, that's just dumb to save ten minutes to expose yourself to a lifetime of badness. Well, when it comes to safety, it's, you know, we take... It's more than shortcuts, like we mow the lawn without steel toe boots. Now, the vast majority of Canadians and North Americans own steel toe boots just because of the jobs we go to require them. And the other ones that don't have them require them to have a job, a good percentage of people have already bought steel toe boots or shoes. Right. And so you go to mow the lawn, and you have your runners, and right beside that is your sandals, and right beside those is another pair of runners, and right beside those is your steel toe boots. Right. And you go and you pick your sandals. Well, and the proper footwear is just two shoes down, and they're right there. Right. It's just a matter of which pair you're going to choose. And yet, we pick the sandals, and 100,000 people every year in North America lose a foot to mowing the lawn. Yeah. 100,000? 100,000. 100,000 every year? Every year. Holy crap, that's a lot. It is. Unless, you know... It's just amazing, you know. Um, we go fishing, and we sit on our life jackets. Yeah, every yeah, summer, yeah, yeah. I've done every, that. Every summer, you read the paper, and there's another drowning this weekend. Like it happens yeah. every summer. We read right. the drownings, right. and if you ever read in the, it's a challenge of mine. I'm still looking for these words whenever I read about a drowning. I want to find the words, and they wear were wearing their life jacket. They right. were wearing never their happened. PFD. Never, never. Because it never happens. Because what a PFD does is it doesn't stop you from fishing at all. Right? You can still fish while wearing it. Right. But if things go bad, and they go bad because we see it every summer, instead you get, to, you get to walk away. You get to go fishing again. Because you took the 10 seconds it would take to put on a, a PFD. Hmm. Wow. It's, so, you know, safety, if you look in the dictionary... Safety is defined as stopping the loss of property or life or uh, equipment, and it's a horrible definition. I don't like it because whoever wrote it, this Webster guy, must have never been through a horrible incident in his life. So uh, I've redefined safety, and I believe safety is to protect yourself adequately at home, at work, at play, and while driving. And by the way, those are the only four places you'll ever get hurt, at home, at work, at play, and while driving. (laughs) Right, right. Protect yourself during those four things properly and you will have a long rich joyful prosperous life Amen. uh can we end uh, with a few minutes about your son because sure. let me say i've interviewed two people born without arms and legs both of them are fathers mm-hmm. and uh if you grow up with your dad like that from day one I don't like their kids. They don't know. They just this is my dad. This is my. Well, dad. first it was my daughter was the older child. She's oh daughter. Oh yeah. okay. But now we do have a five year old son too. Oh okay. So oh, but, uh, I gotta look at the pictures again. I think I only got one with one of you. One yeah, of the that kids. would have been my daughter, but we won't say anything to her. Oh, okay. We won't tell <laughs> your son. He may not be listening. But uh, yeah, so when they grow up. They don't know any difference. This is their dad, and their dad loves them and does what a dad does for them. 
doesn't matter how scarred you are they have open love um i grew one of the biggest blessings i had in my entire journey was um my wife being pregnant when i was hurt because it gave me something to hold on to and to believe in when times got really really dark and they got really really dark for a very long time yeah. but too when i when my attitude changed and my positive uh, behavior started to come out of me I, I realized that if I was going to live my life as a burn survivor, my children would grow up to be one. Mm-hmm. So they have challenged me to go and ski again and to pick up golfing and to go swimming and take my shirt off when I go swimming and expose my body to the entire world. They've challenged me to go out every day, get a job, to want to provide, to um, going to their lessons and their classes because they deserve to have a father more than they deserve to have a burn survivor. Mm. And uh, so, you know, it's one of the greatest blessings. I think we both have learned from it. Yeah. You know, they've yeah. taught me resiliency and strength. And through what they see me go through, I hope they have a kind heart and acceptance and openness to other people, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. Uh, children are so great. Like, they, if it's their parent, they just love the parent. It's the parent. Uh Spencer, I'm looking at your picture before. You're a pretty handsome dude. Uh, do you think you would have been unique, or do you think, like your website says, you wouldn't change what happened to you, and you're certainly unique now. And so you wouldn't call it, never call it a blessing, but certainly you are using it. Oh, this is what I wanted to talk about cause as well, because you said you eventually went and got a job. Like, um, so many people, you know, hear people at work like, oh, I wish I didn't have to work. Oh, I wish I didn't have to work. This is not true because, you know, I've had periods where I have not been able to work for six weeks or so and after surgeries and all these other things. And it is boring as heck. Anybody who says they wish they didn't have to work, well, probably not true. Unless you have a busy life, you will want to go to work. And people say, well, Tom, you could have just stayed home and beyond welfare it's like yeah you know how much welfare pays and what's the difference going to sit at a desk while I'm sore and aching and in pain all over versus sitting at home on my couch and watching TV at least at work I'm distracted I'm among people I'm serving a purpose I'm earning some money if I'm in pain on my couch watching TV all I'm thinking about is my pain and oh poor me and so good on you that you said to heck with this retirement thing I need to get out there and get busy well let's go back to hardship for a second because we talked about the bad part of hardship you know the the pity party and the blaming mm. and the punishing and you know the and the hardship what it wants so it can survive but you know I believe that's the nature of hardship that's what it wants but that's not why it came about uh, there's 8 billion people again in this world, and they're all going to have a bad day, which means there has to be a purpose to hardship. And the way you find that purpose is when you feel like you're playing that pity party and life just sucks and you can't see uh, why things are happening to you, it's that you need to stop. You know, instead of asking why me, you need to change the question to what can I do for me? How can I make this better? Where can tomorrow take me? Mm. Uh, I don't really care what the question is, but make it a question that you can own and one that looks to the future instead of one that continues to look like why me into the past. And when you have a forward-moving question and you keep 
reaching for it. You don't even need to answer it because it will answer itself as you take steps every day forward towards that. Um, so I did go back to work. And uh, I stumbled into a new career being a safety officer, and I had a dream of wanting to be this professional speaker. And I kind of used the two to mold me into the career of being a professional speaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to Toastmasters. I really went out of my box. I took a couple of other speaking courses. I went to um, basic instruction, instructional training, and um, I entered contests, and I, I wrote a book, and I just kept on reaching and striving for this dream of mine mm-hmm. because I had this question of how can I make tomorrow better? And it kept on pushing me. And to this day, I can tell you, 11 years later, it's been answered in many ways, but it has never fully been answered, and I never want to fully answer that question. Because the day it's fully answered means that I have no more purpose. My life is done, and you might as well put me in the ground. I want to die moving forward. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And... The faces, the stories, the thanks you get, and the after speaking, I experience a bit of it, and you must get a big dose of it. Um, to be able to touch lives and make people think is quite a blessing, quite an honor. That's why I would never change what happened to me. Yeah. I took one of the worst experiences in the world, and I made it in something that can touch so many people. Um, I've stopped teenagers from killing themselves because they understand suicide you know everything sucks and nothing's going to change that's the wow really people have kids have told you that um yeah no they've come straight Uh. up you gotta you need to i've taken the courses though the mental health awareness courses and you know you need to when you see someone suicidal you see the signs you have to approach (laughs) it you can't hide or you're going to suffer the loss right so you're probably everybody's not so willing to i just like wrote of it in a book that's coming up and and Mr. Positive Mental Attitude Tom Tutal thought of suicide and probably a lot of people do and probably the worst, and during their worst periods of life they do yeah. Um, but yeah so that would, you would be a tremendous impact on young people and the rates of suicide are rising like crazy and you would be a tremendous resource to someone that would be like why should I stick around and you would really be able to reach into their heart and soul you know when you walk into a hospital room or into the WCB room where you have 12 people suffering and they're in pain and they're having a hard time or even a teenager come up to you and start looking to you for answers through Facebook or on the street or whatever the case, and you can walk away knowing you made a difference and changed their their journey. How can I ever look at what happened to me as a negative thing? It's a blessing because yeah. I, I have helped over the last 11 and a half years so many people um, get rid of their hardship, understand it, and mm. uh, figure out that they are unique. They don't need to fight for this uniqueness. And, uh, you know, the safety awareness to walk into a workplace and change 150 people in an hour and a half on their view and safety and to walk out knowing their families will never go through what mine did. You know, how wow. could I ever think what happened to me was a bad thing? Knowing yeah, you've got like a double kind of blessing now because your story your own story inspires people because of the story but you also have a job where (laughs) you said if I stood up and gave a safety one they'd be like what the hell does he know about safety but when you get up and talk about safety they're like 
I am going to be safe no matter what it takes. The greatest blessing is four years later, someone stops me in the road and says, I saw your presentation uh, at such and such a place, and, man, it changed me. I still remember that present. That's wow. the greatest blessing. That is the greatest blessing. And it's not like they could mistake you for somebody else. That looks like that Spencer Beach guy, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, I do get confused with other burn survivors. But oh, okay. there you go. There you go. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm not great at remembering names, and my challenge is that everybody remembers Tom Too Tall and remembers my name. So I'm like, mm-hmm. darn. <laughs> if I wasn't unique, then they may not have remembered my name, so I wouldn't feel so bad not, about not remembering theirs. Yes. Yeah. Well, Spencer, as I said, I do these interviews a lot of times to motivate myself during those little pity parties that no matter how positive a person is, they still come across the thirty to 60,000 thoughts they have every day. Um, definitely you wouldn't change it. You're impacting lives, lives of people you may never even meet. When you teach a safety message, you do not know who that safety message will help, and you may not meet them. And so you have a job that is, a job and a profession that creates a legacy for your life. When you're gone, you'll have impacted people years later that maybe even don't even know who Spencer Beach is. Thank you. <laughs> so keep up the good work. Where's this book you talked about? I'm looking on your website. Oh, it's called In Case of Fire, and it um, talks about everything we talked about today, but it tells my story. So it's, I wrote the book to help people. And I also wrote it at a time when I knew my story was a positive story. Um, so it, it ends about eight years into my journey. It actually ends right when Tina and I separated and she was going through depression. So I had to put a footnote in it uh, after when the outcome was. Yeah, yeah, you know, We did yeah. get back together. Hard time to but, write a book. Yeah. Uh, but the, it tells the the story of uh, how, you know, what came, who Spencer Beach is before the fire and how he came to be the person he is after the fire uh, and everything, how he dealt with hardship and how he dealt with overcoming his his looks and, and discovering how yeah, yeah. who his real uniqueness is and the safety aspect of it, and it's all in there. You could have got along with your good looks alone back then. Well, I consider myself back then I was extremely good looking, and now I'm a really hot man. So. <laughs> I love it, I love it. Thank you so much, Spencer. I got so much out of this. I know other people will, and I know your life will impact, already has, will impact many, many people. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks, Spencer. Keep in touch and have an amazing day. Yes, and you have a safe day. (laughs) I will. I will. Now I'm going to pay attention to it more. I hope so. (laughs) Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.